All right, now, do you need to go to the toilet? I don't think I do. So we can just go straight in? I think so. Okay. <clears throat> right, um... Ma, 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 ma. Then I shall start. How now, brown cow? <laughs> <laughs> Unanswered. Good evening, Nick. Uh, good evening, Steve. For a very brief second, I forgot where I was and who I was <laughs> talking to. That bodes well. Um, yes. I saw, uh, I believe you read this as well today, a piece on the uh, BBC News website called City Living Makes It Harder to Concentrate. I thought as I was reading through that, it sort of just made me think about a throwaway comment you made a few episodes ago about why cities want us to hate them. And um, oh, yes. just thought that this might be ripe for um, for investigation. So um, what I'm going to do, this is very unusual, tend not to do this to, this, uh, to the show, because um, more often than not, we refer to things, never actually say exactly what they are, and then rely on people to look at the show notes afterwards. Uh, yes. But this time I'm actually going to read the whole thing out, because it's not very long, and um, I think it will be a good starting point. So if you will humour me. Do you mean, does that mean make you laugh? Not in this case, no. Okay. It's basically right. a request to let me read this and not say anything for a minute. Okay. Okay, good. So, City Living Makes It Harder to Concentrate by Sean Coughlin, BBC News Education Correspondent. This is going to be very interesting reading this because I've never done anything like this. It's almost like auditioning for a newsreader or something, isn't it? <laughs> Except I'll be terrible. I'm just okay, going to scroll cool. the page like an auto cue and pretend that I've got um, a TV job for a minute or a radio job. Okay, so cities really do disrupt people's ability to concentrate, suggests research. Researchers from Goldsmiths, University of London, have studied a remote tribe in Africa where some people have remained in the countryside while others have moved to urban areas. It found the urbanised group found it much harder to focus their attention. Uh, researcher Karina Lennell says the difference in powers of concentration was much greater than expected. It might also confirm the worst fears of all the caffeine fueled office workers trying to multitask. By the way, I make no apologies for the way this thing is written. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering. <laughs> Dr. Linnell from the university's psychology department carried out cognitive tests with the Himba tribe in Namibia, uh, Namibia, excuse me, in, uh, I've already failed, Namibia in <laughs> southwest Africa, and also included a further comparison with young people in London. She found that the Himba tribesmen and women who stayed in a rural cattle herding setting were much better at tests requiring concentration than members of the same tribe who had been urbanized and were living in towns and cities. The results for urbanized Himba were indistinguishable from the results of undergraduates taking the same tests in London, said Dr. Lennell. The researchers suggest that people in an urban setting have too much stimulation with an overload of sights and sounds competing for attention. Concentration is improved when people's senses are aroused, says Dr. Linnell, but if this becomes excessive, it seems to have the opposite effect and reduces the ability to focus on a single task. As such, the people living in cities were not as good at tests which required sustained focus and the ability not to be distracted. The rural living people were much better at such tests of concentration, even computer-based tasks, where they might have been expected to be less familiar with the technology. 
This is not necessarily a case of being better or worse, says Dr Lennell, but it could be a reflection of what is needed to survive in an overcrowded urban setting. It is not a fleeting impact, she suggests, as the tests show that urbanised people from this tribe have developed a different way of looking at events. There are really quite profound differences as a function of how we live our lives, she says. Another finding is that the Himba people who have moved to the city are more likely to be dissatisfied and show signs of unhappiness. In contrast, the simpler, frugal life of the rural tribespeople seem to leave them with a greater sense of contentment. When so many of the world's population are now living in urban settings, this has far-reaching significance, says Dr Lennell. It could mean that many urban dwellers are performing below their capacity when it comes to tasks requiring sustained thinking. What if, for example, companies realised certain tasks would be better carried out by employees based outside of the urban environment where their concentration ability is better, she says. Dr Linnell also suggests that this urban disruption of concentration could be linked to a reduction in attention spans. That was very good. Thank you, Steve. Um, it wasn't your fault, some of that. There were a couple of weird non-sequitur bits in there, quite leading bits that I don't remember from when I read it, but actually seemed really glaring once you heard it out loud. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because it's one of those things where I don't know Sean Coughlin. I, I'm sure he, he maybe comes from a really traditional uh, journalism background. I, I don't. I honestly don't know. This might be unfair, but it feels almost like... There's a brief there, not just to deliver this story, but also to punch it up and maybe cause a little bit of outrage, maybe lead people along a certain path. But then he never quite goes all the way because he remembers he's working for the BBC <laughs> yeah. rather than the Daily Mail. Like the bit that you uh, like the bit that you noted <laughs> that you commented on, it just kind of uh, drops that little thing in there about. Oh, I can't even find it now. The caffeine-fueled office workers trying to multitask. Yeah, it's trying to make this already quite interesting research seem more relevant to the people who might be reading this. And it's like, well, it doesn't really explain the link. And that's that's why the article is also accompanied by uh, a picture of Times Square in New York. Just so the British people on bbc.co.uk slash news have something to relate to. Even the, even the study itself is looking at life in London. Yeah. So so let's find a picture of Times Square and use that instead. The uh, a bustling city yesterday it should have said <laughs> yeah, underneath it should have done. <laughs> what it what it says underneath that picture is that the sights and sounds of the city have a negative impact on the ability to focus. Hmm. One thing about reading any research driven, uh, any research delivered in a news story is you always kind of feel like you should spend a bit more time going and looking at the original source. But the problem is that the actual academic research can sometimes be written so dryly that for most of us, that's that's quite difficult. There is a yeah. link to the Goldsmiths uh, website, but it is just to the front page of the Goldsmiths website, which this story is on the front of for now, but might not be by the time uh, you go and look at it. And so it's problematic because even if they talk to the researchers, they'll sort of cherry pick the bits that seem to be making a story and quite often proper research isn't as cut and dried. It doesn't make as many assumptions as journalists have to. I don't think there's anything necessarily in what they've presented here that, that says that it's definitely the sights and sounds of the city. What the research says definitively 
is that people who live in one place have more trouble concentrating on tasks than people who live in another place. But it doesn't actually say anything about causality in either of those places. Mm. It doesn't tell you why people in the city would struggle more. And there are other assumptions that are made which, which aren't helped by some of the photos that they've presented because the picture of New York looks very bustling, it looks very impersonal, it's chaotic, it's a bit scary. The picture of the rural Himba people, who are much better at concentrating than the city dwellers that's given, kind of looks vaguely like a festival. It doesn't show people in the middle of their working day, which, if you live in a rural community, is probably actually quite hard. It just mm. kind of shows people sitting around. There's a very lovely person in the foreground grinning their head off. The one thing that didn't occur to me when I was reading this, but really did occur to me once I listened back to it, is obviously there's going to be this urban focus. It's going to be from the point of view of someone who lives in a city in a westernised country that has quite a comfortable life. But there's this happy native thing going on there, which is almost a little bit disconcertingly unscientific. It's almost reflective of the desire, perhaps, of the person in that city life and that hustle and bustle to dream of something much simpler. It's sort of... I can't assume that it's in everybody, but there's got to be a little bit of that the good life thing happening in everyone who lives that urban life. Do you know what I mean? And they see a photograph like that and they go, that looks nice. Maybe if I was married to Felicity Kendall, I could live this quiet, lovely life. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Anyone who's seen the Mosquito Coast or anything else where a a white city dweller decides that they're going to go and live in a... Well, actually, the beach is very similar as well. Go and have a simpler life somewhere very rural. Kind of puts light to this a little bit because we have a lot of assumptions. Now, the thing I was thinking while I was reading this was, although it compares the city dwellers in the study with city dwellers in London... I don't think it necessarily looks at the similarities between someone who lives in a quiet little leafy village in England. No, I I mean, again, we're we're in the situation where basically we were reading an article that's probably just a regurgitation of a press release. So we haven't looked into the research in too much detail. And and so we can't criticise too much of what this article has and, and therefore what the report has. I'm glad on looking at it the second time round that it sort of filled a gap in my reading from the first time round because initially I thought it was just comparing people who were in the Himba tribe living rurally compared to the people who lived in London. Um, Going through it again, it looks like that it it, it tracks the people from the Himba tribe, uh, those who stay and those who go. Um, Even in that, though, I think it would have been interesting, and maybe there are some examples, but you almost need to take a group and put them in both situations for an equal amount of time and then let them decide where they want to be to really sure. get an idea of the longer effects. Because um, if someone says, I'm going to the big city because I want to live big city life and I want to have a professional job, then that's fine. Once they're there, they're probably fulfilling some sort of a dream. They don't necessarily have an immediate desire to go back home because they feel like they've made it or they're doing the next step in their life or whatever. So it's not like I'm getting the impression from this research, but then, of course, it, you know, it might not have been the point of the research to look for this in the first place. But here are some people who live a simple life. Let's take them somewhere where it's not so simple. And, and then for those who go back to the rural life, what effect has that had on them? Do they appreciate what they have more? Because the, the, the kind of the undercurrent in this mm-hmm. is sort of suggesting, well, They don't know any better, so of course they will be happy with what they have. I definitely think that that is a component of the 
for want of a better word, prejudice or confirmation bias that's in place there. I don't know if it necessarily comes through in this particular article so much as we know that that's a component of this idea of the the smiling native. Mm. Of course their lives are more content. They get to live near the earth. They don't. You're absolutely right. What it doesn't really explore is whether contentment means something different in these different settings. Yes. And to these different people when we're humans when we're happy we all kind of respond and look the same way when we're sad or disconcerted or whatever we we kind of react in very similar ways but depending on where we are and what our lives are like what makes us happy they're they're completely different things Mm. there's also that that idea that it's the difference between a simpler life and a more complicated life that is very much in this article and and seems to be very much part of this research but the thing i was thinking while i was reading it and this this may be me projecting it's definitely me projecting a little bit and again this might be just as an offensive an assumption about rural life but it feels like when you live in maybe not poorer places, but when you live in a place where your life is directly tied to your means of living, like you live in a farming community or you, even in this country, you would have been able to see it when we had more cities that were built around particular industries. It's not that you're necessarily content or happy, but the thing, things that impact on you when you live in a city very seldom have anything to do with your life with when you live in a farming community especially a farming community in a in a place that might not be as industrialized as the way farming has kind of become in this country or when you live not so much a more primitive setting as one where you don't necessarily have the same uh, access to supermarkets or your food isn't being shipped in from elsewhere, your livelihood isn't directly tied to what you're doing on a given day. Of course, if I go to work, well, if I go to work, when I go to work, my livelihood is directly tied to me getting the salary from going to work. But what I'm doing during the day has absolutely nothing to do with what I end up getting out of it. Obviously, uh, managers might disagree with that. But what, I'm, what I mean is, if you're a farmer, if you have a bad harvest or if you don't put the work in, either you're not going to eat because you're not making the food or you're not going to eat because uh, you're, the farm that you work for isn't managing to sell stuff because they've had a bad harvest or whatever. Everything's tied to what you're doing when you're working the whole ecosystem or the whole economy of the place you live in is tied to that. Concentration is kind of more of a commodity in that situation. I'm not saying you won't get bored of tilling the fields or whatever it is you're doing or driving the, I mean, even in in this country or driving the tractor or whatever. But if you make a hash of it, then you could starve. Whereas when you live in a city, quite often what you're doing... It's totally unrelated, isn't it? It's totally unrelated to how you live in the city. You turn up to work, maybe you're working in something that's a bit more vocational, but a lot of what you're doing will be abstract. It's not directly related to how much money you get out of it. You get your salary and and you get that from turning up and doing the best you can to look engaged. We've got more of a safety net. We also don't have to produce our own food. We don't have to worry about where our food's coming from. If we go for a walk in the parks near our house, we might have to worry about human predators we're unlikely to have to worry about other predators concentration isn't that big a deal there are plenty of ways you can die in an american or an english city or a russian city or a russian highway apparently (laughs) um there are plenty of ways you can die living in an urban setting but there's a lot more chaos to it they're not necessarily as tied 
to what you're putting into your life. Even if you're driving, yeah, you have to concentrate and keep things on an even keel. But if there's a crash, if you're going to die on the roads today, it is probably more likely to be because someone else that you have never met before, who has nothing to do with you, who maybe isn't even from the same town, just crashes into you. Sure, it's more chance, not a question of someone's position on the food chain. Definitely. If you're going to lose your job tomorrow, it, it might just as likely be tied to a decision being made in another country or in a bank somewhere. Yeah. It's not without dangers, but there isn't as much of a direct connection between what you do and what you're focusing on and the consequence of it. Mm. And so you concentrate enough to not walk into the road <laughs> or, or to not get your TPS or whatever reports completely wrong or or, or any of those things but we don't have to worry about where our food's going to come from i mean obviously we have to worry about money the poverty is a completely separate issue well not completely separate issue but we're not having to really take any risks when we actually go and gather our food exchange our food for goods and stuff like that we're not likely to i don't know anything about namibia so I have, no, I have no idea how dangerous it is. You might run over a deer in this country, but you're unlikely to get caught in a stampede. That's good enough. That's vague enough, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I guess the closest uh, example of a stampede uh, we would have in this country is a pile-up on the motorway. Yeah, which, again, can come out of a clear blue sky. Well, I mean, if there's, um, if there's a flyover that hasn't finished being built, it would probably come from the sky. <laughs> That's true. And I'm not, I'm not saying there isn't chaos in other countries. I'm just saying that there's plenty of things that are out of your control. The weather's completely out of control in, in those situations. But you have some sense of that coming. Maybe 90% of what happens in our daily lives in cities is chaos. And it's not. I don't think it's the case necessarily in rural situations. Whenever you go and work in a factory, I've worked in a cake factory before in the Manor Bakeries, which was where Mr. Kipling's cakes came from. Before you go any further, I would like to thank you for being involved in the process of making exceedingly good cakes. <laughs> That's okay. I-, I wasn't very good at it, but, uh, but thank you. Okay. Uh, your gratitude is, is appreciated by all the hardworking <laughs> men and women who worked in those places. Were you involved in Cherry Bakewells? <sighs> Do you know, I honestly can't remember. It was Ooh. all a blur, literally. They're my favourite. When you go from being a student dealing with more abstract things or when you haven't really worked in a setting like that, it's not all on paper, it's not all on computer screen. If there's a conveyor belt and you screw up and you're not paying attention, stuff is going to go flying and people are going to get angry with you and profits are going to go down and you can get into trouble. Especially if you're a temp, you could lose your job. It's not a particularly great life getting on a bus to the same job every day when that job is uh, making sure cakes don't fall on the floor but at least you know what you have to put in for that day not to become a complete disaster you have a fairly good idea of what's coming at you Mm. you're fairly certain that if you're paying attention your day isn't going to end in disaster that isn't the case with a lot of our lives i don't think and it certainly isn't the case when You live in an urban setting where everyone's on top of each other. Our houses are all kind of crammed together. We're quite often living in apartment complexes where we don't know the people we're living with. If someone walks past your house or walks past you on the way back to your house in the dark and they're drunk, you genuinely have no idea what's going to happen because even if they only live two doors down from you, you have never seen them before in your life. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do wonder if that's a possibility that's been missed a little bit, certainly in this article and maybe in this research, that what constitutes a good day in a farming community is not what constitutes a good day in an urban setting. The other thing I was thinking about this is it seems to equate quiet with rural quite a lot, or at least it seems to equate the... Um, Which is bullshit if you've ever seen Emmerdale. Definitely. Um, but it just made me think of the area where my uh, my sisters and I grew up, which was a, an area called Orton, just outside of Peterborough. Now, it's a wide open space. It's a bunch of very cheap houses built in these kind of little square arrangements, and then lots of open space. There are no roads running through it. There are dual carriageways going around it and into all of the little residential bits. But you can ride your bike, but for a really long way, and not have to deal with cars not have to deal with loads of other people, stuff like that. But as far as I can gather, looking back at it now, what there wasn't in that area were money, all that much money, or all that many jobs. And so, you know, my sister moved out there a few years ago. I don't know what it's like now. There are lots of bits of it that are like a slum. People that are nodding out because they're on heroin, just sitting in alleyways and underpasses that you wouldn't want to go through. That's a quiet area. There isn't a lot of bustle in those places, and yet people aren't content there. So it can't be about quiet. This lack of contentment can't be about distraction. Or purpose, I suppose. Yeah. If, you know, a new outskirt of a city is not even necessarily its own town or village, it's just kind of like a bolt-on part of the city limits. Um, If that's been built just to house extra people, there's probably not much near there except, you know, a bit of open space if you're lucky in a corner shop. Because the sole purpose is just to hold people who then commute every day, uh, driving, riding bikes or taking the bus to get into the city centre to do whatever job it is that day and then go back home. It still doesn't function as its own community as we imagine villages still function. You know, if a small farming village started to suffer uh, issues with its crops, you know, well, there was a well, there was a reason why you couldn't farm there anymore. Then no one sticking around to keep it going, they would move, right? I guess anywhere now you probably can't do that just because of the infrastructure that's in place, you know, you still have to support it, but cities in particular, there's just so much that still needs a supply that you couldn't just shut it down and walk away. And you couldn't easily displace the population that's there. I've always lived on the South Coast. I haven't got that sort of experience or that touch with, you know, because I've been in Southampton pretty much all my life. Like, it doesn't have, it, we don't have much of an identity here. And, and, and you can tell by spending any amount of time here that there isn't like <laughs> one, there isn't one thing that unites people in Southampton in the same way that, you know, uh, people can have pride in aspects of their town or their city. You know, there doesn't, apart, apart from it's not something, you know, it's not Portsmouth or um, a famous ship that sank once was docked here. You know, there, there isn't much going for this place so so again i can't easily relate to although i have great admiration for it liverpool's a great example i think i don't have anything that that can relate to these towns and cities that have just massive pride
pride in their heritage that can keep the soul going, that can keep the heart beating in those places, even when they're going under mass pressure because a key industry kind of withers or um, it's a place that ends up having a lot of uh, public sector employees and then all of a sudden you get years of austerity cuts and these people are losing their jobs and that kind of stuff. You know, that, that even still, they can keep a spirit despite the immense pressure that the its society, that its people, uh, its population are going under. Um, I was looking for an article that I read a really long time ago about Southampton. We've kind of drifted on Southampton, and that's kind of fine, because it is a city that we both live in. Um, and it's also a perfectly good example of what maybe once started out organically, but now is a brain trust in the middle, and most of the population invested in just keeping it going. Mm. Whatever the cost, finding something for it to be about, which is which is what you just said. But the headline to an article where I did a search for uh, Southampton architecture was... Um, the headline, and it's an article by Owen Hafferley, was Southampton, what's next for this major port turned mega retail park? <laughs> <laughs> that immediately tells you what the problem is. They, they used to be, this city used to have a purpose. I'm sure it was never as cut and dried as all this. I, maybe you have to go back to when these places were villages and just kind of formed up out of people who'd ended up there. And, you know, the environment wasn't trying to kill them as much as it was a few miles over, so they stayed. Maybe you have to go that far back, but that headline basically says it all. But I wonder if that isn't the case in a lot of cities. One of those weird terms you hear, I think of it as weird. I think a lot of other people are quite into it. When a city is crowned city of culture, and that's what they are until another city ends up having that, like taking the mantle on or whatever. You couldn't start a town based on that, I don't think. It's not really a reason to exist, I think whenever you hear about, I think we've both read a lot of stuff maybe about Southampton that completely chimes with our personal experience of it. Every couple of years, our city council tries to do something <laughs> to put the place on the map and it starts to become more and more divorced from the reality of the people living here. It's by no means a hard place to live, but it's really not a very relevant place to live or it, it doesn't... Most of the people who live here don't really necessarily understand why they just kind of landed up here. The place yeah. doesn't have a personality. It's definitely worth looking at Owen Hathaway writing about Southampton. Um, I came down here because I thought there'd be seaside. There is no seaside in Southampton. So if you're listening to this and you're considering coming down... <laughs> Yeah, because you think I can't, beaches. Man, I can't believe there'd be anything that we could say that would attract people. <laughs> uh, After everything you just said. Unless you just want to bear witness to it. I mean, if you... <laughs> right, great. Let's drive up tourism. You know, oh, there's this one podcast that like five people listen to that two guys talk about. And they talked about Southampton. I thought, well, that sounds like a place I want to go and see. Mm, look at these nice, plain 1950s buildings that were built in a rush after Southampton was almost obliterated by uh, <laughs> Nazi Germany. Mm. Yes. Come. <laughs> see, see, see the remains of our ancient walls. Look at us build new horrible things to replace <laughs> another horrible thing that was only actually open for about six years before the bottom fell out of it because it was just a bad idea. I used to like living here. <laughs> Come to sunny Southampton. It's not Portsmouth. <laughs> but I think historically, Southampton was like quite significant. It was mm. a southern-facing town. It had access to water, but it was well protected by land. So you could see people approaching Southampton Water and do something about it. So there was that. The River Itchen led all the way up to Winchester, which was historically the capital of, uh, of England. 
early on it did have this significance. It became a port town and was therefore a gateway to the world. I don't know. I don't know what killed its significance. It just, in so, in so many ways, it seems like the place to be that has all the makings of a significant city because of its heritage, where it was positioned. You know, you're not that far away from the New Forest, Winchester, Portsmouth, Bournemouth. There are large towns all around. There's like a hub here. You're an hour and a half away from London. You can catch a ferry to the Isle of Wight. You could catch a ferry to France. The climate's not that bad. There's all these sorts of things that seems to be going for it, but it just somewhere, somehow, lost any soul. And, and that may well have been, in part due to the fact that so much of it was destroyed and then rebuilt in a hurry. Even if it no longer had industry, even if it was no longer a significant port, and I think it is still quite a significant port, mm. it's just not significant enough for that to be the point of it. Um, I think a lot of places got bombed almost flat during World War II, but there were some really bad decisions made about what to put in its place. I guess it, a lot of it was rebuilt at a time that was quite architecturally inhospitable it was it the 50s were quite brutalist well there just wasn't much money around either and the aesthetic fit that what you see when you look at i always found it very strange and, and in fact when i when i first moved here i'd hope this is relatable for people who live in a lot of british cities maybe it struck me as quite cool that you could see the evidence of this being sort of a castle town yes uh, or at least having the walls when you got here when i first got to southampton that was quite significant the walls are right there in town or the city center certainly was built to accommodate the walls and there's the bar gate in the middle of town and that was all very interesting but there wasn't a lot of respect for any of those elements um or even you know a, a look to what would be long what would be attractive in the long term about the city in any of the building that happened it's almost as if when they were re rebuilding it they were a bit embarrassed <laughs> by those things and that was okay everything was kind of in balance when i first got to southampton uh, which was nearly 20 years ago but then about 10 or 15 years ago the city center got remodeled and it made even less of those elements, mm. even less of the natural flow of the city. The city has quite a small city centre, actually, and quite, it a, really does. quite a straightforward high street for the amount of... Because uh, Southampton's a, an odd place. We've spent a bit of time in Leeds over the last couple of years, uh, mainly in the city centre, haven't we? Not necessarily in the residential parts of it, no. but in the city centre. When the further up north you go, the more spacious everything seems to be, the more spread out everything seems God, to be. Yeah, Edinburgh is just sprawling. It's beautiful, but I mean, it's, yeah, okay, so it's a major city, but you can tell this was a city in heart and spirit for hundreds of years, and the way the new town had been planned in the um, 1800s was all very deliberate. It just has a level of care to it that you wouldn't see if you were planning a city like that now the effort that that went into the architecture was more considered and all this kind of stuff they weren't building it in a hurry let's put it like that mm. but yeah it's it, it is quite odd to go to a city like leeds edinburgh somewhere like that and there just be this this sprawling city center where there's just life everywhere there's not this strip that you have in southampton do you know what it might be i don't know if southampton ever produced anything it's always been tied to commerce it might have been a place where things were built, but I don't think it was ever a place where natural resources were mined. No. It's significant because of the port. And I guess all port towns are a little bit like this. And the problem with that is it's all tied to whether or not there's money coming in. And if yep. it gets cheaper to do something somewhere else 
then that whole city is completely fucked and you end up with a city that keeps coming up with you know maybe though if we had lasers shooting out from the middle of town people would love us and come <laughs> and live here maybe if we had the biggest shopping center for uh, at least six months in europe or in our case the most traffic lights per square mile mm. in in britain or something maybe people will come maybe they will love us what might be quite universal to living in cities certainly in in england or britain is that schism between why the place was there in the first place and what it's become yeah I also only really got an insight into from reading um, Owen, Owen Haffley on the subject. When I first moved to Southampton, there's a small town outside Southampton that had a very bad reputation when I first moved here as being um, a little bit down at heel and a little bit cheap and a little bit rubbish, um, which is Eastleigh. It's between Southampton and uh, Winchester. Closer to Southampton and Winchester, but yeah. Yes, certainly. And uh, it's on the train line. And that's really the only significant thing about it. It seems to only exist to have people live there. On reading into it a little bit more, reading Owen Halfley on the subject, Eastleigh certainly was a very drab, characterless place. The streets are in a totally grid-like structure. It's all terraces, or certainly the parts of it I know are all terraced houses. The way Eastleigh was apparently formed was literally because the people who were building the industries or the industrialists or whatever, it's a long while since I've read the the post, who were building the railways needed somewhere to put their workers in a way that we don't tend to see anymore. They were building rail in this direction. A lot of the rail was going on in this direction. So Mm. they thought, well, we'll put the rail workers there. It's like a a pop-up town. Exactly, and I think it was all built very quickly, which is why it's on this very firm uh, grid-like structure, which is why the houses, while not awful, are quite modest, they're quite functional. Yes, that's true. Although this sounds awful with um, our modern sensibilities, that was good enough as far as the industrialists were concerned. The people who were building the railways... Um, while they almost definitely had harder lives than we have, would have been happy to have a job and a place to live. And that was all fine. Eastleigh was probably fine. It was probably better than not having a job in the middle of somewhere like London and, and having to scrabble for whatever you could find. When there weren't so many people needed to build railways, other people started moving into those houses in Eastleigh. And what you get is a town where the people who live there are literally living in there because they needed somewhere to live. Then the town doesn't know what it is anymore. It doesn't really have a purpose beyond just being a place where people sleep. And if you've ever lived in a a very studenty area like the one I live in, you know that when you're only living somewhere because you needed to live somewhere... The vast majority of people end up, okay, they might not be throwing bottles in the street, but there isn't going to be as much civic pride. Sure, there's very little love, isn't there, for yeah. uh, for an area that houses transitory or perhaps dispossessed people. Yeah, you're living there because it's literally the only place you could go and live. Yeah. 10 or 15 years after, I, well, 10 years after I got here, it started serving another purpose and the house prices started going up a bit because Winchester, which is a very rich town, People were wanting to live in Winchester. I guess maybe they were. It was a it was a good place for very well to do people who lived in London to who worked in London to commute from. But so anyway, so what started happening is Winchester basically got full up of quite rich people 
for the six months that I was staying in uh, Eastleigh, I discovered that there started being a little bit more money in Eastleigh because people who wanted to live near Winchester were instead buying cheaper housing in, um, in Eastleigh and doing it up. And I think some new developments got put there. Mm. You start to find in a place like here or in a place like Eastleigh and places all over the country, they're no longer building. Actually, I think Peterborough is a very good example. I think a lot of the residential part of Peterborough was built because it was near enough to London to be economically significant. I think a lot of a lot of uh, Peterborough's corporation housing basically. It was thrown up to house workers because it was useful to have your business quite near London, but it was much cheaper than actually being in London. Yeah. Whereas now, most most um, most of the houses being built now are literally just being built to house people who need somewhere to live. Cities aren't filling up because people are coming to a place because it's good to do a particular thing there. They're just coming there because they need somewhere to live. I watched a fantastic BBC series last year, which was uh, co-produced with the Open University about the secret history of our streets. There were six episodes. Each episode focused on a street in London. The streets that are picked, obviously, are all very different. They've had very different lives. So some would be more about the poorer end, the working class end, and how the community thrived and survived, but how many of them could afford to be local or were able to be so local to what was going on because they were in tenements, because they were like extended families and two rooms. Um, there were what, uh, in the in the 50s and early 60s, you know, they were living in what was deemed to be um, uninhabitable conditions, you know, and there was great slum clearance. So what do you do with all those people? You disperse those people because clearly they're in unsuitable living environments, according to the council, and that these places need upgrading or tearing down and starting again, which is seen by many as, you know, another sort of gentrification that you realise that actually, you know, the value of land in London is escalating. We can see the industry growing. If only we could clear out these poor people in these old houses, you know, we could bring in a much better class of people and give this place a better reputation, etc. Blah. Um, but the effect that it has on the people who are there, obviously they want to fight to stay. But what about the people who get displaced? It's sold to them as, well, you know, we've got these this fantastic new estate that we've built 20 miles away from what you've called home. And um, they're new and they have their own bathrooms and the toilets are indoors. Uh, and it's got a fitted kitchen and it's marvellous. But And it's sold to you on this lifestyle that is obviously appealing and it's new and it's modern and it's all this kind of stuff apart from that old place that you lived in but it's not connected to anything this stuff has been built to house people who you know on the cheap to house social housing to house people on the cheap who have been displaced from somewhere that has a very strong community to it has history and a community spirit and that civic pride and because it's just inconvenient for things to be the way they are. You have all this displacement, people being moved out places, and stories of families not being able to hold it together anymore, people getting depressed, because mm. they've, been, they've been moved to somewhere that doesn't have the purpose or the meaning or, or the connection anymore. 
Uh, and it's a theme that crops up several times within the series. Um, it doesn't focus on slum clearance every time. There's there's one road uh, which fought very hard to keep its architecture, to not have things knocked down and rebuilt. Through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was this very strong community who wanted to keep the road as it was. Things escape me now, but you could you could see how certain stories that were being told to you through time, through the planning in the in the seventeen you know, in the in, in the ancient history, the planning changes in the eighteen nineteen hundreds lead to changes in the community, social changes come through the civic engineering, how that would be replicated throughout mm. the country. When you were talking about the city planning that was going on in the situations you were talking about earlier on, and when I think about our city as well what you get is a similarly really short term approach to what should be really long term decisions made by actual local government people who aren't supposed to be completely driven by capitalism they're supposed to be driven by more social drivers they they do obviously do a lot to benefit businesses but generally their job is to look at the long term future of a city but they keep making these weird little short term decisions decisions yeah. that really don't make seem like they'd make sense in the long term i think the problem is that just nobody's thinking steve <laughs> I think that's the problem. The people who just leave Domino's pizza wrappers in the street aren't thinking about what state the street's going to be in once everybody's been doing that for six months. The people who buy houses to rent them out, the people who set up retail businesses or whatever with no real view to making them sustainable, the local councils who are literally just desperately trying to cling on (laughs) and make a decision that's just going to get them through the next six months. People need to be thinking, like, we're all going to live... If we're unlucky, we're all going to live 70, 80, 90 years, maybe in the future, 150 years. We've got to start thinking longer term. You and I don't have to start thinking longer term. I mean, we, you know, frankly, we can piss it all down the drain. It doesn't matter. But the people who are in charge of important things that matter, they need to start thinking. They just need to start bloody thinking. <laughs> just Won't they just think <laughs> of the everybody? <laughs> Perhaps what we're stuck in the middle of is an infrastructure and a certain way of living that isn't fitting in with the changes that are happening with the way that we live our lives with the way that the economy runs with the changes that are coming ahead technologically as well not not just in terms of like city planning or how many shops you've got or whatever but when villages and towns and cities uh, not evolve but the, but when they grow you know when they when this small seed of a few people in a settlement is planted and over decades and hundreds of years they turn into whatever they are in now they haven't had the ability to evolve and change because the change is just happening too quick right now. The housing bubble of the last uh, 15 years has meant an, uh, a massive increase in the value of property and speculation in the market um, in buying and selling, but also building. That has a massive effect on the way people live and work in cities and the life decisions they make. But the rest of the city can't keep up. Mm. I guess it's just that the rate of change that's happening to us as a society is sort of overtaking our ability to change our environments around us, right? In in that some way that we can't quite face up to the challenge of of, uh, generating our electricity, you know, by not wanting a power station built near us or or, um, wind turbines, you know, spoiling an idyllic view because there's this ancient 
idea of what England or the United Kingdom is that we don't really want to let go of. At the same time as like we want to hold on to that, we're also too busy making these short-term decisions that you're talking about as well. You know, let's turn, let's turn this area of a city into a new shopping complex, and then two years later, because you haven't thought far enough, there's a there's a credit crunch and the banks collapse, and you've got this massive white elephant. I imagine there's evidence of that in every single city in this country at the mm. moment. Decisions are made to fuel and pay developers rather than because we need them. I think it's interesting that you use the term evolution because the thing I've always thought about cities is cities are where we've broken evolution. There's no natural selection in a city. Well, unless you start going into the idea that the person who has the most money is the best equipped to yeah, survive, yeah. The, we, we don't do it. If it gets too cold in a city, we build central heating. Or if we run out of space, we just build up. That's what we do. And that's what we've done since we worked out we could do that. If you look at infrastructure as being like this, the life support system for people rather than the things that they can do, a lot of cities have become almost all infrastructure. Like we've said, yeah, it, it's all about just keeping people alive and not realising. You mentioned Mega City 1, and I don't know if it's pertinent, and it is a little bit, maybe a little bit more, I don't really know how to describe it other than Ben Eltony to say it. <laughs> but uh, I'm reading a book at the moment of stories set in Mega City 1, um, all written by Cy Spurrier, all about one of the slums. There's this situation where this character is going around driving people mad, basically creating this situation where people go into their place of work and just kill everyone there. The suggestion in there really ties into what we're saying. The suggestion that the person is seeding in the minds of these people that they want to go on these rampages is there was a point in this city where it became cheaper and smarter and more efficient to robots became so cheap that it became cheaper and smarter and more efficient to just get robots to do everything. But the problem with that was humans ended up doing menial, pretty much menial jobs, because that was literally the only jobs where it was cheaper to get a human to do to do the job than it was to get a robot. But because that made the people remaining desperately unhappy, and there were so many of these those people, what they did was they started disgu disguising these robots like humans. So literally what you get is an office that is full of robots disguised as humans doing jobs, just to keep the guy who's cleaning the corridors... <laughs> just to keep that one human... <laughs> Happy, yeah. yeah, exactly, and um, and it sounds ridiculous now that I say it out loud, but that's kind of what we're what we're talking about, extrapolated to this crazy far future situation. We're in Philip K. Dick territory, maybe a little bit here. Are they really doing anything to the roads when you see all of those roadworks, or are they just moving stuff along to make us think that stuffs? <laughs> they're just moving all of their roadwork stuff along to just make us think that things are still ticking along. Do you know what I mean? When a shop front in the middle of a city centre goes empty for ages, is it really that no one can afford to go in there or are they, are they just leaving it fallow? Things must be changing, things must be moving along because a new business just opened up in that shop front where another business closed down two yeah. months ago. Oh, look, I can't wait. A, a, a Poundland. <laughs> um, I'm really depressed now. Still. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's just, again, it's just an indication of our experience, isn't it? Because I look at other places that have a more independent spirit or a little bit of culture about them and they have more boutique stores. Or there's just a, there's just a place that, that can sustain more independent businesses. I think in, the, in terms of the UK, uh, Brighton, 
for example, sure. has a real good mix of like your Commonal Garden High Street plus a real burgeoning sort of independent store culture, which um, keeps places like that, you know, alive, where others sort of die on the vine because anything that was independently spirited had, had, had been crushed out of the market and now has no chance of coming back because the desire's left or people have turned to the internet or there just isn't the enthusiasm for it anymore. But, um, you know, had we had that experience or had we ever lived in or visited like San Francisco in California or Austin, Texas, or places that just have this more independent spirit that uh, I'm sure it happens a lot more in America than it does here, to be honest, that, you know, there are successful, dedicated, independent stores and coffee shops and restaurants and things like that. that haven't succumbed to the desire of, of racing to the bottom on prices and mm. uh, recognizable chain brands. You know, if we'd spent more time in there that, you know, we might have a different view and we could say look here's some evidence we've seen that says this culture is still very much alive um and yeah in terms of our experience it is a bit disappointing and, and, and depressing but it's good to know that these places are still out there and still exist it's just they can't house all of us yeah well i was gonna say i, I can't speak for you but if everybody like me everybody who is a bit like me moved to brighton we'd ruin it within a month <laughs> <laughs> i have to tell you maybe it's a good time to just quickly re revisit the one last thing about that initial uh, inciting article that kind of bugged me because it seemed to miss the point somewhat because it does kind of tie into what we just said mm. the final couple of paragraphs what it says it's the uh, doctor dr linnell just commenting on one of the possible things you could draw from this research and it says, what if, for example, companies realised certain tasks would be better carried out by employees based outside of the urban environment where their concentration ability is better? Um, I think what she's suggesting is that, that corporations and organisations might realise if they put gigantic building full of office drones in the middle of a rural area, those people might be able to concentrate better. But the thing is, <laughs> if every company does that, what they're essentially creating is another city. Yeah. That's kind of how cities start. So it, it just struck me as one of those strange things. We could all try and live somewhere better, but if we all lived there, it'd get worse. That's, that's how it works. <laughs> Actually, Amsterdam's a pretty good example. I don't know what Amsterdam does beyond the tourist industry. But the tourist industry is probably strong enough there because it's it's known around the world for it's, a couple of very specific things. It has it? developed a very modern reputation. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure it would have always been. Maybe it would have done. Actually, maybe maybe it would have done. It strikes me um, that there's probably quite a bit of shipping that happens there, so yeah. <laughs> the sex work may be a, a stronghold for uh, Amsterdam. It's, uh, I it's but not Anne, for that Anne bit. Frank. Yeah, I was going to say not for that bit when Anne Frank was there. She was. Um, she wasn't working. She was most definitely not. No. But she was in a way because she was writing. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder uh, what she'd have to put down on the tax return. <laughs> <laughs>